0: Welcome to the MacArthur Memorial Podcast. Located in Norfolk, Virginia, the MacArthur Memorial is a museum and research center dedicated to the life and legacy of General of the Army Douglas MacArthur. The memorial is also dedicated to preserving and presenting the story of the millions of men and women who served with General MacArthur. Each month, the staff of the memorial will use this podcast to explore topics relating to General MacArthur and his times. In 1925, the court-martial of Billy Mitchell captured national attention. The trial was so sensational that it would go on to inspire numerous books and even a movie starring Gary Cooper. At the center of the controversy was Billy Mitchell, a man who is today recognized as the father of the United States Air Force, a man who believed in air power and in the importance of military preparedness. In his lifetime, however, he would be a martyr for this cause. Mitchell's core argument makes sense today. Air power is important, and it has a role to play in modern warfare. It is essential for defense, and it is essential for attack. In the first decades of the 20th century, however, few people could even form a mental picture of why air power was important. For centuries, the empires of Europe had been won or lost on the backs of navies, and the late 19th century and early 20th century was dominated by yet another naval arms race. It was an age of iron battleships, and relationships between nations were often colored by the size and composition of one's navy. Few people at this time, whether ordinary citizens or military leaders, could look at a canvas-clad fighter plane or the thin metal skin of a bomber and envision a day when these awkward crafts could menace the dreadnoughts of the sea. Mitchell's outspoken belief in this possibility ultimately led to his court-martial. General Douglas MacArthur was a friend of Mitchell's and a member of the court-martial panel. Like Mitchell, he was a somewhat outspoken officer, with a keen eye to a future war he could feel was on the horizon. This month's podcast will explore the relationship and beliefs of Mitchell and MacArthur, as seen through the prism of the court-martial. MacArthur and Billy Mitchell had known each other as boys in Milwaukee. The two boys were not close friends, but their paternal grandfathers, both immigrants from Scotland, had been friends. Their fathers shared a love of Scottish heritage and were bound together by their experiences as Civil War veterans. Connected by these ties, the MacArthur and Mitchell families frequently associated with each other and moved within the same social circles. When the MacArthur family was in Milwaukee, It was only natural that a young MacArthur and a young Mitchell would come into contact with each other. Of their early interaction with one another, little is known, but it is clear that MacArthur lionized the older Mitchell. He also briefly dated Mitchell's sister, Harriet. Years later, both MacArthur and Mitchell would serve in France during World War I. MacArthur as chief of staff of the 42nd Rainbow Division, and Mitchell as commander of all American air units. Both returned from the war highly decorated and highly influenced by what they had observed of that war. For MacArthur, a witness of countless frontal assaults against entrenched enemy positions, the idea of a frontal assault became an anathema. In the years to come, he would gain a reputation for thinking outside the box, always trying to find a way to envelop or surprise the enemy. He would also come to the conclusion that military curriculums needed to be modernized. For Mitchell, World War I proved that the air would become a decisive battlefield in wars of the future. In the years that followed, he would become more and more convinced that aircraft, not battleships, should form the first defensive perimeter around the United States. During the 20s, both men made numerous enemies as they called for reforms and tried to draw attention to the issue of military preparedness. MacArthur encountered resistance when he tried to modernize the Civil War-era West Point curriculum, and Mitchell increasingly irritated Army and Navy brass by declaring battleships and land armies expensive and somewhat irrelevant, without air power to control the skies. More than MacArthur, Mitchell was particularly contentious and outspoken. Anxious to test his theory of bombers versus battleships, Mitchell managed to convince the Secretary of War that a test was necessary. After some controversy, it was agreed that a test would occur. On July twentieth, 1921, after intense training, Mitchell was ready to demonstrate the effectiveness of air power. Fifty miles from the mouth of the Chesapeake Bay, the Navy had positioned the Ostfriesland, a battleship confiscated from Germany after World War I ended. The Ostfriesland was an impressive ship having received 18 hits from enemy shells during the Battle of Judland. Limping home, it even struck a mine. A lesser ship would have been finished, but within two months, the Osfriesland was ready for more action. With the Osfriesland as a target, over July 20th and 21st, Mitchell's air crews dropped bombs of varying sizes on and around the battleship. Nearby, American and foreign officials watched the demonstration from aboard the USS Henderson. The captain of the Henderson was none other than Captain Arthur MacArthur III, the older brother of then Brigadier General Douglas MacArthur. On July 21st, Mitchell successfully proved that aircraft could sink a battleship. After sustaining direct hits as well as damage from near misses, the Ostfriesland sank. Mitchell described the death throes of the battleship as the struggle of some immense, round, helpless sea animal. While the particulars of the test were not as controlled as a test would be today, to the observers it was clear. Aboard the USS Henderson, there was relative silence as the battleship sank. Benedict Crowell, a munitions and ordnance expert aboard the Henderson, wrote of seeing admirals and captains crying and covering their faces with handkerchiefs. As Glenn Martin, the founder of the Glenn L. Martin Company, which would later evolve into Lockheed Martin, explained to the New York Times, control of the sea is now insufficient. Control of the air is vitally necessary. As another observer summed it up, it was the end of an era which had begun, when Rome crossed the high seas and smote Carthage. Ships, for centuries the chief power of empires, had just been displaced by air power. Mitchell's victory would prove pyrrhic, however. Despite the success of his test and a wave of popular interest in aviation, he'd made enemies by challenging the privileged status of the battleship. In August, a joint army and navy board published its verdict on Mitchell's test. The board's report was signed by only one man, General of the Army's John J. Pershing. Pershing made it clear that while aircraft could damage or even sink battleships, this was not a reason to dethrone or abolish the battleship. This report downplayed the success of Mitchell's demonstration and spurred the outspoken officer into further action. Rather than bow to Pershing and the will of the battleship admirals, Mitchell became more and more determined to win public support for his crusade. In September 1923, he once again successfully used bombers to demonstrate that the initiative had passed to the air. If he had thought he would be recognized for his obsessive devotion to innovation, he was to be disappointed. He was soon packed off on a tour of the Pacific on the hope that he would return less enthusiastic and aggressive in his fight for air power. Even though the Pacific tour was also supposed to double as a honeymoon for the recently married Mitchell, from the very beginning it was clear that honeymoon or not, Mitchell would not be silenced. On the first leg of his Pacific tour, he publicly ridiculed Hawaii's air defenses, bringing much embarrassment to General Charles P. Summerall, the local commander and one of General Douglas MacArthur's patrons. Mitchell's Pacific tour also brought him back in touch with MacArthur. The two men visited with each other in January of 1924, while MacArthur was stationed in the Philippines. There is speculation that during this visit, Mitchell shared with MacArthur his thoughts on the need to prioritize air power. He probably also complained about the jaundiced views the establishment held concerning air power. MacArthur's thoughts on Mitchell's theories at this time are unknown, but he was likely sympathetic to the struggle, even if he was not yet thoroughly convinced of Mitchell's thesis. Far from returning meek and obedient from his tour of the Pacific, Mitchell returned fired up and even more convinced that he was right, and that the admirals and generals arrayed against him were wrong, perhaps even traitorous in their ignorance. In April 1925, He was relieved as assistant air chief and sent to San Antonio as corps air officer. He was ordered repeatedly to stop his public attacks, but was so convinced of the merit of his crusade that he continued to defy orders. On September fifth, 1925, while speaking to reporters, Mitchell blamed a recent crash of a Navy dirigible, On the negligence of Navy leaders and also blasted the Army for being similarly ignorant of the potential of air power. This was the final straw. Mitchell was summoned to Washington DC to stand trial on eight charges, including conduct prejudicial to good order and military discipline, and conduct of a nature to bring discredit upon military service. Shortly thereafter, MacArthur received word that he would be a member of the court. He later referred to this as one of the most distasteful orders of his career, but Mitchell and his attorney welcomed MacArthur's presence on the court, believing him to be a tolerant liberal officer. With the exception of General Frank McCoy, another officer considered tolerant and flexible, MacArthur would be the only friendly face on the jury. At one point during the trial, Representative Fiorello LaGuardia of New York was asked to comment on a statement he had made which implied that Mitchell was not being tried by a fair jury but by a jury already convinced of his guilt. Smiling, LaGuardia backtracked, informing the court that at the time he made that statement he didn't know that General Douglas MacArthur was on the court. LaGuardia had a point, however. Mitchell was not being tried over his views but over the manner in which he expressed them. In some ways, this was a more difficult position to be in. The violence of his criticism essentially put him on trial against the larger-than-life specter of General Pershing. As John Cook writes in his biography of Mitchell, Mitchell's position was heretical because it challenged the wisdom and guidance of General Pershing, who had near godlike status among army officers. Mitchell had also made an enemy of General Charles T. Menoher the 1st Air Chief. During World War I, Menoher had commanded the 42nd Rainbow Division, and as such, also happened to be one of General MacArthur's key professional allies. He was an odd choice as Air Chief, because he didn't have any aviation experience, and this eventually put him at odds with Mitchell, who had been named Assistant Air Chief. In the end, Mitchell forced Menoher out of his position as Chief, by making it clear that if Menoher did not resign, he would. Menoher ultimately did resign, but this displacement did not sit well with other military leaders. Given Mitchell's challenge to tradition, to command structure, and the great deference accorded Pershing, LaGuardia was right in pointing out that the verdict was already a done deal. The court was packed with officers who had been criticized by Mitchell, who disliked his tactics, or who were devoted to Pershing. Mitchell and his defense counsel, Representative Frank Reed of Illinois successfully challenged the presence of some of these officers, but despite some small victories, it was glaringly obvious that the trial was a mere formality. Probably aware that he was indeed guilty of actions prejudicial to good order and military discipline, Mitchell instead used the trial as a public forum to make his case about air power. As the trial progressed, it turned into a circus. The public watched the trial with great interest and court members like MacArthur listened to a parade of witnesses like Eddie Rickenbacker, Carl Spatz, and Hap Arnold, all great names in aviation who defended Mitchell's beliefs about air power. During the trial, MacArthur made no comments and questioned no witnesses. His first wife Louise was present at every session of the court, and a few observers noted that MacArthur's attention was frequently drawn to his wife. Some believed him completely distracted by his wife during the proceedings, but others attributed his obvious lack of interest in the proceedings as due to his displeasure with the assignment. The court-martial was a difficult situation for MacArthur. One reason for his stony silence during the trial may have been the fact that he was very close to becoming chief of staff. With the verdict a foregone conclusion from the start, it was probably advisable for the young Major General to keep silent, especially since two of his key professional allies, General Summerall and General Menoher, were against Mitchell. On one hand, MacArthur understood and supported Mitchell's theories, seeing them as the patriotic expressions of a good officer concerned with the security of his nation. But, as a man devoted to the army, he did take issue with the manner of Mitchell's attacks on the military. Mitchell himself was not unaware of MacArthur's quandary. During the trial, he was overheard to remark, MacArthur looks like he's been drawn through a knothole. On December 17, 1925, Mitchell was convicted. It was a split vote, but how each member of the jury voted is and always will be a mystery. An enterprising newspaper reporter checked a trash can in the courtroom after the trial was over, and found a crumpled-up paper ballot. The ballot was in MacArthur's handwriting, and it read, Not Guilty. Later in life, MacArthur would claim credit for that vote, and for doing everything in his power to soften Mitchell's punishment. Mitchell was grateful to MacArthur and remained his friend, but according to Mitchell's wife, he never knew how any judge voted. Following the conviction, Mitchell's counsel, Congressman Reed, told the press, Billy Mitchell is the John Brown of 1925. They think they have silenced him, but his ideas will go marching on, and those who crucified him will be the first to put his aviation suggestions into use. The Germans and the Japanese would learn this lesson first, but as Reed predicted, Mitchell's vision would eventually be adopted with great success by the United States military. MacArthur and Mitchell had disagreements over tactics and strategy, But for the most part, these disagreements were merely a matter of timing. In many respects, Mitchell was years ahead of MacArthur in understanding air power. In the 1920s, he predicted the war MacArthur would fight in the Pacific in the 1940s. He argued that in a future war against Japan, any offensive would have to be made under the cover of air power, and that campaigns across the sea would be carried from land base to land base under the protection of aircraft. Before his death in 1936, Mitchell wrote of the men who sat on his court-martial. A number of the men who convicted me will be called on again to guide this nation in the Second World War. I hope they will then understand what I had to say. Douglas MacArthur, I believe, will be the first to admit that I was right. He will go far if he can extricate himself from the stupidities of our War Department, and if he is given free rein in whatever he may be doing. In this instance, Mitchell would get his wish. Intrigued and impressed by air power, by World War II, MacArthur would grasp and perhaps even surpass Mitchell's vision of the potential capabilities of air power. At the Battle of Bismarck Sea in 1943, Allied bombers were pitted against Japanese transports, destroyers, and fighters. As Mitchell would have predicted, the bombers effectively wiped out the Japanese convoy, and ultimately prevented the Japanese from reinforcing their positions in New Guinea. This guaranteed an Allied victory in New Guinea, and years later, Jean MacArthur, Douglas MacArthur's wife, recalled watching her husband pacing the floor in the aftermath of the battle. According to Mrs. MacArthur, as he paced, he could be heard to continuously exclaim, Billy Mitchell, Billy Mitchell, Billy Mitchell. In the hearings that took place after his own dismissal decades later, MacArthur argued, I do not believe the military shall be so gagged that the truth and the full truth shall not be brought out. I believe it is in the public interest that diverse opinions on any controversial issue shall be fully aired. Otherwise, you do not get what is the foundation of the very liberty that we breathe, that people are entitled to have the facts, that the judgment of the government itself is subject to their opinion and to their control." Mitchell saw his attacks on the establishment as loyal opposition, and MacArthur clearly had a similar vision of the duty of an officer. As he would write in his autobiography, his military philosophy was that an officer should not be silenced for being at variance with his supervisors in rank and with accepted doctrine. Combined with the zeal of each man, this philosophy virtually guaranteed friction. Ironically, although perhaps not surprising given this nature, like Mitchell, MacArthur would end his career in an atmosphere of controversy after challenging government policies he believed were fatally flawed. Thank you for listening. We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please feel free to contact Amanda Williams. At Amanda at Norfolk.gov. <gasps>